We're on page 958 in the Blue Bibles. That's 1 Corinthians 11, 958. 1 Corinthians 11. Let's pray. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. That's how this letter opens. And we thank you, Father, for your grace to us. Thank you that we live in your peace. Thank you that you hold us in grace, in Christ. Thank you for all that that means. Thank you for your kindness to us. Thank you for your mercy. Thank you for your patience with us. Thank you for your word that teaches us who you are. Help us now, Father, to hear you well, to hear your word to us and to respond in ways that please you, each one of us. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Can anybody tell me what... Proverbs chapter 27, verse 6 says. Proverbs 27, 6. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. A true Christian friend won't always tell us what we want to hear, but they will tell us what we need to hear. A true friend tells us what we need to hear for our good. Now, Paul, the apostle, was a true friend, a faithful and wise pastor to the Corinthian church, and he was willing to speak wounding words when necessary for their good. In this passage, Paul uh, shows the Corinthians the ugliness of their sin, but he doesn't leave them there. He leads them to Jesus. Now, friends, before we get into the passage, I have to say this this passage may be a wounding message to us this morning. But when our Father in heaven speaks words of correction to us, they are always spoken in love. They are always for our good, without exception. This message may be sore to hear, but by God's grace, may his words to us this morning lead us also to Jesus. What's going on in the passage is that Paul had heard reports of something that was happening in the Corinthian church, and he wrote to correct the wrong thing that was happening. It had to do with the way they took communion. But Paul, a wise and faithful pastor that he was, understood that wrong behavior always flows from something wrong in the heart. So uh, the way the Corinthians practiced communion was the, was the surface issue. But really what Paul is getting at in the text is what the way they took communion revealed about what was going on in their hearts. Let me say that again. What Paul is really dealing with in this passage is what the way the Corinthian church took communion revealed about what was going on in their hearts. It was a very serious thing. So serious that Paul had to deal with it now. You will have noticed at the end of our passage, verse 34, he says, there are other things I'll sort out with you when I get there. In other words, there are other things that can wait. But this issue cannot wait. This needs to be dealt with now. And you'll notice in verse 17, Paul says, I cannot commend you in this matter. 
Actually, he said that twice, verse 17 and again in verse 22. You'll get no praise from me with regard to this practice of yours. Actually, in verse 17, he goes a step further and says, when you meet together as a church, because of what you do when you take communion together, your gathering actually does more harm than good. Those are hard words. And he doesn't ease off. In verse 30, he presses even harder. He says to them that this wrong thing that they were doing in communion, the ugliness of the sin that it revealed, was the reason why many of the church were weak and ill and some sleep. That's what that word at the end of verse 30 is. It's not died. In the Greek, it's koimontai, sleep. When the Bible uses the word sleep in that way, what it means is, is, is that those, it's talking of those who have gone to sleep in the Lord. They've died. Their earthly lives are over. They now rest in the Lord. Sometimes the Lord disciplines his people by cutting short their days. It's not a judgment unto condemnation, verse 32 tells us. It's a merciful judgment of discipline to save the wayward from condemnation and to bring to an end their damaging influence in the church. That's how serious the thing that was going on in Corinth was. So serious it needed the immediate attention of the apostle who spoke on behalf of God and who said that some of the Corinthian believers had already come under the merciful but severe discipline of having their earthly pilgrimage cut short. So what were they doing? What was the issue with the way they went about communion? What drew these wounding words from Paul? Well, the church in Corinth didn't have a church building like we have and like many churches around the world have today. Instead, their normal way of meeting together was in smaller groups in one another's houses, much like our home groups. And from time to time, all the smaller house groups would gather together in the home of a wealthier member of the church whose house was big enough to host everyone. And that's the situation behind this passage. The whole church gathered together at the large home of a wealthy member to share communion. Now, the way they celebrated communion was also different from the way we do. They had an actual meal, a full meal. Roast beef, Yorkshire puddings and gravy, or chicken curry if you prefer. A full meal. And as part of that meal, they would share the bread and the wine that are symbolic of Jesus' body and blood. Now, archaeological studies of the large, wealth, uh, large houses of the wealthy upper class of the time show that the dining room, which was, it was called the triclinium, the dining room of a typical villa would host nine people. Now those nine people would lie down, recline around the table for their meal. Other guests, not those nine, would sit or stand in the atrium, the courtyard, which might hold 30 to 50 people, depending on the size of the house, and, uh, and depending on how tightly everybody packed in. And this was just the way large celebrations happened in Greco-Roman society of the time. The host and his wealthy, connected, important friends would dine in the triclinium. Those of a lower status 
on the, on the social ladder, the middle class, the poor, freedmen, the slaves, they would gather and eat in the courtyard outside. It was like first class compared to economy class on an airplane. Or you might say more like first class compared to ultra budget super saver class. Just as first class passengers get to board first, they get better food, better wine, better service, nicer TV screens. That was the way social get-togethers happened in society of the time. How you were treated at the party depended on your social rank, your political connectedness, your inherited wealth. We have a letter from a Roman magistrate of the time. His name was Gaius Plinius Cecilius Secundus. Would have been easier for me if his name had been Jack, but he describes a party he was invited to like this. The best dishes were set in front of the host and a select few. Cheap scraps of food before the rest of the company. He, even, uh, he had even put the wine into little flasks divided into three categories, not so that his guests could choose, but to make it impossible for them to refuse what they were given. One lot was intended for himself and for us, uh, another for his lesser friends, and all his friends are graded, and the third lot for his and our freedmen. So the social elites ate and drank like kings and queens in comfort and in plenty. Everyone else was treated like dogs, feeding off scraps outside. Sometimes, instead of providing food um, for everyone, the, the, the host would invite everyone to bring their own picnic, picnic baskets, essentially. So, of course, the rich, who had both money and time at their disposal, would go to Harrods and order the best of British picnic hamper for four, which I checked online the other day, can be yours for just £2,000. The middle classes, who had less time and uh, less money, who only finished work in the early evening, perhaps stopped at Sainsbury's on the way to church, grabbed a few sausage rolls and, and, and some grape juice to bring to the meal. And then the poor and the slaves arrived at the gathering whenever their masters or the demands of their circumstances allowed. Perhaps some had managed to grab a, a handful of scraps off a pile on their way, uh, picked up half a discarded apple on the pavement. Others arrived empty-handed. And this is what was going on when the church gathered for communion. The leisured wealthy arrived early, gorged themselves on the, the best and the finest, and the poor arrived when they could, and many went hungry. And so we come to verse 20 of chapter 11. This is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For when you eat, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. Don't you dare attach Jesus' name to this despicable thing you're doing. That's what Paul is saying. Verse 22, do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? And you can almost feel Paul restraining himself. No, I will not. 
The problem in Corinth was that the values of the culture were on display in the behavior of the church. The values of the world had taken over the church. The church looked just like the world. Why did the church look like the world? Why were the values of the culture on display in the behaviors of the church? Because at least to some degree and at least for some of them, their hearts still loved the world. Sinful behavior always flows outward from a sin-loving heart. Paul says in verse 27, they were eating the bread and drinking the cup in an unworthy manner. What does that mean? What does it mean to take communion in an unworthy manner? It, it does not mean that we who come to worship can ever be worthy of him whom we worship. The issue is not your or my worthiness. Left to ourselves, we are not and can never be worthy. Apart from Jesus, we can never come into the presence of God hoping for anything but condemnation. But, thank God, back in chapter 1, verse 2, we've already been told, we are the church of God. The church of God that is in Coventry, sanctified in Jesus Christ. In Him, in Jesus, we are sanctified. In Jesus, we are made worthy to enter His presence. But that drives us back to our question then. What does it mean if we are worthy in Christ? What does it mean to take communion in an unworthy manner? Well, let's work through it carefully. It is important to understand the logic of this. What's going on when we take communion? What are we doing when we share the bread, when we drink the juice? What do those acts mean? Well, very simply, those acts are pictures they are signs, demonstrations of our union with Jesus. When we eat the bread that represents his body, we proclaim more than the historical fact of his death on the cross. By eating, by drinking, we say, Jesus, you are mine and I am yours. Your body broken on the cross is the judgment I deserve. Your death is my death. I am by faith in you on the cross. When we drink the wine, we say, Jesus, you are mine. Your blood poured out on the cross is the judgment I deserve. Your death is my death. I am by faith in you on the cross. Our union with Jesus in his death is what gives meaning to our proclamation of union with him in his resurrection on Easter Sunday. If we did not die with him by faith on the cross, then we are not raised with him by faith. The point is, communion is our visible way of saying, Jesus, I am, we are yours. We are in you, we belong to you, and in you we belong to one another. But that's not what the Corinthians were saying. Their communion was saying, Jesus, thank you for saving me and giving me an entry ticket to heaven, but I really have no interest in knowing you. 
or being a member of your body in reflecting your character. I just want the benefits of what you did for me, but I want to enjoy life my way according to values that are comfortable to my flesh. I don't want to be constrained by what belonging to you means for my relationships with these people. Their worship was no worship at all. Verse 20, when you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. This is nothing other than a display of the worldly values that still control your hearts. That's what Paul is saying. You say you come together to remember Jesus, but look at your behavior. Each goes ahead with his own meal. One getting drunk, others going hungry. But look at Jesus, Paul says. On the night he was betrayed, he gave thanks. He broke the bread and he said, this is for you. This body broken for you. Jesus gave his body to be broken for the poor, for the helpless. Who are the poor and the helpless? You are. I am. We are. Apart from him, we are spiritually destitute, helpless, without hope. He who was and who is rich beyond all measure, glorious beyond all telling, broke the bread that night and said, this is my body, broken for you, for you. Some of the wealthy Corinthians had not let go of the values of their society, the values that allowed them to say of their brothers and sisters in Christ, I am better than you. I deserve more than you. There is not one thing wrong with me eating the Herod's hamper in full view of you while you remain hungry and calling that an act of remembrance of Jesus. Paul holds up this contradiction before their consciences. Look at the ugliness of what you're doing, he says. And look at the beauty of him in whose name you claim to be doing it. Your gathering looks nothing like Jesus. There is nothing of his character about it. You look like the world. It's the world's values that are on display here, not the heart of him who broke the bread and said, for you. The church looked just like the world because at least to some degree, and at least for some of them, their hearts still loved the world. <coughs> well, what about us, friends? We gather in a building, not one of our homes. We don't practice communion the way they did. So maybe this passage doesn't really have anything to say to us. Well, let's think about the principle at work here. Paul applies the principle to communion because that was where the issue was on display in Corinth. But the principle embraces all we do when we gather for worship and in all the rest of our lives too. So we can ask the question this way, what does it mean to worship God in an unworthy manner? 
What does it mean to come together to remember and celebrate Jesus in an unworthy manner? What does it mean to call ourselves by his name unworthily? What does it mean to call ourselves a church of Christ unworthily? Now, again, friends, I, I need to be very careful here. There's, there's nothing in our life as a church, at least that I'm aware of, that is as glaringly obvious a malpractice as what was going on in Corinth. And it would be very wrong of me to lay a false guilt upon the church. But Paul does say in verse 28, let each one examine himself. So friends, let me ask you, are you willing to examine your heart and your behaviors against the example of Jesus? The Corinthians had said, in effect, society's values allow me to live self-centeredly. Society's values allow me even encourage me to put my rights first. My rights, my privileges. But this passage teaches us that our lives individually and as a church should not be shaped by the world's values. The cross sets a different standard. We should be a cross-shaped church. We should not look like the world Paul tells us we should look like Jesus. And more specifically, we should look like Jesus in his giving of himself for his people. Now, of course, we don't give ourselves in any saving way. Our bodies and our blood are not sacrifices for anybody's sin. They could not be. We have no sacrificial value in that sense. We are not called to try and look like Jesus in any sort of atoning for sin way. In that respect, Jesus stands alone. Only he is worthy. But we are called to examine ourselves against the one who said, I lay aside all my rights, all my privileges, everything that I could enjoy by virtue of my infinitely superior status as God, and I choose to give myself for you. We are called to examine ourselves against the one who held nothing back for the good of his people. Are you, am I, willing to let go of those things that by the world's standards, you and I are perfectly entitled to keep for ourselves, for the love of your brothers and sisters in Christ? Or is something in your life off limits to Jesus? Are you entitled to keep all that is yours for yourself alone? Well, certainly the world tells you that you are. But there is only one person whose say matters when it comes to the values that ought to shape the behaviors of the church. Only one voice counts in this discussion. And he's already told us earlier in this letter, you are not your own, for you were bought with a price. 
And friends, that's why this message is so hard to hear, because at least to some degree, our hearts, yours and mine, still love the world. Our sin is as ugly in God's sight as was the sin of the Corinthians whenever we bring the world's values into the church. But when we live like Jesus, it is beautiful in his sight. It's true we are like babies, still learning to take our first steps. We get up, we fall down, we get up again, we take half a wobbling step and we crash, fall down again, up and down. Compared to Jesus, our best efforts to imitate him are like the, the stumblings of a little child still learning to walk. But oh, how your father delights in your stumblings. We must be a cross-shaped church. We must come again and again and again to the cross to confess our sin, to confess the self-centeredness of our hearts, and to ask the Spirit to change us more and more into the likeness of him who gave himself, holding nothing back. We cannot live this life we are called to in our own strength. It is not possible. But Christian, the Spirit of Christ dwells in you. And if you set your mind on the things of the Spirit, if you set your mind to follow in the ways of Jesus, then you will, little by little, put to, get, put to death the self-centeredness of the flesh. What kind of life is this that we are called to? It's an impossible life. Impossible in your own strength or mine. To reject the values of our society wherever they run counter to the values of Christ. To say no to the world whenever it encourages us to self-importance self-satisfaction, self-indulgence, to say no to the desires of the flesh. Willpower and moral resolve will not get us there. A supernatural thing must happen to make this sort of life possible. To live according to Christ is to cling daily to Jesus and to hold tight to him means a cross-shaped life. You cannot be in Christ on the cross and not feel the splinters of the cross in your back. Now, the life we are invited to in Christ runs so contrary to our flesh and to the way of the world what we are called to, what we are invited to, cannot be understood by earthly eyes. The way of the cross is foolishness to the world. But there is a kind of life, a quality of life beyond that which the world knows or can offer. It is a Jesus life in you, in us, a joy in obedience. Now the world will say to you, you are free. You are king of your castle. No one can tell you what to do. But that is the way to death. Jesus says, obedience is the path to joy. 
And for Jesus and for us, obedience was cross-shaped. How counter to our flesh. Even as I say this, I have to think it through because my, my natural inclination is to say happiness is in the direction of obvious pleasures. But that's not what Jesus said. Jesus said joy lies on the path of obedience. He who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning the shame. We read in Hebrews of the heroes of our faith, Moses and others, who for the reward of Christ shunned the world, rejected all the treasures the world had to offer. The, Jesus said, my food is to do the will of him who sent me. Man of sorrows, yes, he was. But no one who has ever set foot on this earth was more joy-filled than Jesus. The path of obedience, the path to the cross, counterintuitively, against the preaching of our flesh and against the, pre the preaching of the world, the path to the cross is the path of joy. It is Jesus' life. It is a supernatural life. It is a quality and a kind of life that the world does not recognize, cannot see, makes no sense to them whatsoever. But if in his mercy, if in his grace, he has opened your eyes to see it, then walk that path, my friends. What does this mean for each one of us personally? I don't know. I don't know what the Jesus life looks like for you in its day-to-day -day detail. I do know that for me, it involves constant confession of the self-centeredness of my heart, ongoing repentance of the un-Jesus likeness of me. I don't have the wisdom to know how this applies in every detail. But I leave you with this question, friends. In what ways might you be living more like the world than like Jesus? In what ways might you need to confess? The wounding question of this passage is simply this. Does your life proclaim the cross of him who gave himself to be broken for you?